Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream, our 637th, is that correct? And a half. And a half, yes. Yep. I forgot the half, yep. sorry, my bad. Uh, actually, what number is it? 57? It is, it is 57. 57, mm-hmm. all right, that's a lot of live streaming. Um, it is. Yeah, so we have um, we four have, topics. We have four topics, um, and uh, although neither of us really love to do this, uh, we should start the top of the hour by saying what we did last week at the point that it was only 24 hours old that um there are now uh there's now merch available including the title of last week's episode your algorithm's no good here on t-shirts hopefully on hats at some point although that takes some embroidery uh, yes yeah so hopefully at, in a socially uh, distanced park near you sooner rather than later. I'm not sure you can buy it at a socially distanced park. No, no, park. I'm hoping people will wear them at the park. <laughs> yeah. So that you can go to store.tarkhorsepodcast.org um, to to find those things uh, if you want to while you're Awesome. While you're and listening. as long as we have mm-hmm. sullied ourselves by, you used the term merch, did you not? I did. Okay, so merch. Yeah. All right. We're yeah. dealing with commerce, markets. We're interfacing directly with the public and their buying power. Yep. Um, here we are. You uh, should, if you are interested in having us address your questions, know that you can file Super Chat questions during this first hour that we will answer during our second hour. That's right. Um, so anyway, and consider have, doing that. If you have questions about any of this, you can email darkhorse.moderator at gmail.com. And the person who answers that email will uh, likely respond to you, unless you're rude, in which case they may not. Yes. Yes. Indeed. I'm using the they uh, simply to preserve their pronouns because they don't go by they no they don't no all right so we want to talk about um big game hunting in pre-columbian america uh whether or not you when you say something with anger or with love or with any kind of emotion it changes whether or not the thing itself is true Mm -hmm. uh let's see we want to um ask what the game theory behind uh bailout funds for uh uh for Riders in Portland might be, and how that's playing out. And then um, finally, and perhaps for you know a, a lot of the time here today, we're going to wonder and then investigate whether or not asking questions like that make us all right. You feel all right today? Not all right, man. The question is far right. Well, but they're both they're both listed there. Yes, right? both okay. listed. All right. Okay. Um, so it's big game hunting. Let's let's do this. I'm excited for this. Yeah. Yeah, you're excited. You, you're excited for me to go out big game hunting and drag home a moose? Uh, no, I'm excited to discuss whether or not it would make sense for you to go out big game hunting, <laughs> being a woman and all. A woman and all. Yes. I'm not just a woman. I'm a woman and all. A woman and all. And right. all. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, frying up that moose in a pan. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's good, yeah, though. It's, it's good, though. All right. Um, okay. Uh, here we go, Zach. Let's just show show my screen here. This was published in uh, Science, I think. It wasn't one of the science uh, uh, the secondary publications. So I don't know. Does Science do that, or is that just Nature that does that? I'm uh, I'm confused by Science advances at the top. Is that advances in Science, or is exactly. Science advances a thing? But exactly. surely we can. No, we... it's Science advances. Actually, science it is. Advances. It is one of the sort of knockoff <laughs> knockoff Science magazines. This was published in uh, November, November fourth of of last month. So um, just a month ago, called Female Hunters of the Early Americas, and. Um, I want to just actually, rather than the abstract, I think in this case, the introduction um, provides a slightly better introduction. 
uh, rather than the abstract, which is a summary of the whole paper. So just the first paragraph of the introduction reads as follows. Big game hunting is an overwhelmingly male-biased behavior among recent hunter-gatherer societies. Such observations would seem to suggest that this gendered behavioral pattern is an ancestral one, ostensibly stemming from life history traits related to pregnancy and childcare, which constrain female subsistence opportunities. However, a number of scholars have theorized that such division of labor would have been less pronounced, altogether absent, or structurally different among our early hunter-gatherer ancestors. And here, incidentally, they have like eight nine uh, references. Early subsistence economies that emphasized big game would have encouraged participation from all able individuals. Alloparenting, which appears to have deep evolutionary roots in the human species, would have freed women of childcare demands, allowing them to hunt. Communal hunting, which also appears to have deep evolutionary roots, would have encouraged contributions from females, males, and children, whether in driving or dispatching large animals. Moreover, the primary hunting technology of the time, the atlatl or spear thrower, would have encouraged broad participation in big game hunting. Pooling labor and sharing meat are necessary to mitigate risks associated with the atlatl's low accuracy and long reloading times. Furthermore, peak proficiency in atlatl use can be achieved at a young age, potentially before females reach reproductive age, obviating a sex-biased technological constraint that would later intensify with bow and arrow technology. Last, the residentially mobile lifestyle entailed by big game specialization is quite conducive to human reproduction and thus female hunting, contrary to previous thinking, because it reduces net movement relative to central place foraging strategies. This hypothesis is consistent with high population growth rates among early hunter-gatherer populations. So I wanted to read that in part because I wanted to be able to say atlatl a number of times. Atlatl, yes. Which I have, I will have more opportunity to say as we proceed. But um, so you have not actually spent any time with this paper. No, I've spent a little time. Oh, you have. Okay. So I have a number of things I want to say, but do you have any immediate response? It's not your first response, but. uh, Yeah, sure. Um, So first of all, a number of things. One, um, there is, uh, as I'm sure you will get to, a very broad pattern uh, in populations where you have both hunting and gathering. There is this overwhelming uh, bias towards males doing hunting, uh, or at least big game hunting. Big game hunting. Long distance, Um, multi-day hunting. Right. Right. Um, And, you know, that's not really in question here. Yeah, they uh, don't question it. Right. Well, nor should they. The evidence is so overwhelming that this is the general pattern that it just simply is. Now, the question is... Recent hunter-gatherers, right? Is what they is what yes, they say, right? They the say, evidence is for recent is is clear. They say recent hunter gatherers, which really just means uh, the extant and those recently enough extant um, for us to have good evidence. And mm-hmm. so what we have here is subfossil evidence. Subfossil meaning it has not been converted to stone. Mm-hmm. These are buried remains in the New World, which is independently interesting that the New World may have had different dynamics uh, unfolding. That suggests a female hunter of big game. Now, the place where the rubber meets the road here, as far as I'm concerned, is the nature of the evidence and how justified we are in actually inferring what they have inferred here um, from it. So um, I think that introduction did not explain the nature of the evidence at all. Uh, Yeah, the nature of the evidence is burial sites, right? That they have, um, that they've found... 20, they've got 27 burial sites. Uh, I think, if memory serves, it's all in the Andes. Yep. So this is this High is, Andes. This is um, tropical America at elevation, which most people wouldn't call tropical, although technically it's tropical, but it's at elevation. So it's not hot and humid. Um, it's sort of got a temperate climate while being actually 
really tropical. Um, so Andean habitats with 27 burial sites in which a full hunting toolkit uh, was buried alongside uh, people. Um, and in these 27 burial sites, there are 16 that are men and 11 that are women, which is st- statistically a not um, apparently not a decipherable difference. So it, it looks like, you know, men and women are equally likely to be buried with a full hunting toolkit, which in other places has been interpreted as evidence that you know you're buried with the stuff that you used in life. Yes. That is that is the that is the that is the one big inference here. Now, right? not so fast there, Dr. Hyatt. Okay. Okay. So among the things that are worth paying attention to here, here's a a thing that if you study um, paleontology, you will have to grapple with, which is the ability to distinguish a male skeleton from a female skeleton is not nearly the straightforward thing that that one would imagine it. That the morphological distinctions that we see um, in a flesh and blood human are actually not so reliably reflected in skeletal uh, structure that one can simply look at a skeleton and say one way or the other. Now, if you have... Well, they are looking at not just osteological, they say, but proteomic and isotopic analyses as well. I know they do. But the question is, what are these kinds of evidence and how good are they, right? Mm -hmm. So, A, the skeleton doesn't tell the story in and of itself. If you have... So, let me just, let me pause here. So, I did not spend a lot of time considering their evidence. I, I... I spend a lot more time thinking about what it would mean um, if it were true and therefore how likely it is that that, um, that it is true. Um, but super fascinating that you would be arguing that you can't tell based on um, the even just like just the shape and size, the, you know, robust versus gracile nature of male versus female skeletons at the same moment in time, what sex they are. Because, I mean, this is a position that that I at least, and I think you, um, have been very clear on with regard to, you know, this, these, this is one of the things that on average is highly, highly different between oh. male and female. But of course, those population distributions, males and females at a particular moment in time, are also highly overlapping. Right. And that's the problem is that mm-hmm. they're overlapping. So, you know, if you looked at a large population of skeletons, and in some sense, they have a small population of skeletons here, mm-hmm. which you cannot assume are equally... So if you had karyotype evidence... Yeah, you know what? I'm so... I'm I'm not I'm not buying this because because pelvis pelvis width al- alone is right. highly highly cor- it's, it's highly predictive of sex. Right, but first of all there's a reason that a I don't think their fossil evidence is so awesome here in terms of quality of these skeletons. And this archaeological evidence not they're, fossil. They're, yeah. Right. They're well subfossil anyway, but yes, yeah. they're archaeological mm-hmm. evidence because I believe now you spent more time with this paper than I did. I I breezed through it. Mm-hmm. It looked to me like they were inferring this from, for example, the gracile nature of a femur, I think it was. Mm. And so I don't think they have complete skeletons here. I think they have fragmentary evidence. And the, the reason that they are using three different kinds of evidence here, one of which is actually new to me, and I don't even... I the didn't, proteomic? No, no. The proteomic I get, right? So the proteomic is going to be basically protein evidence, mm-hmm. right? I just so, it, so 20 years ago, it wouldn't have been called proteomic. Doesn't make any difference. Okay. I, I don't um, know. It's, it's let's put it's it this way: they are inferring sex from a certain amount of skeletal evidence, mm-hmm. and then a bunch of molecular evidence. Mm-hmm. Now, why the molecular evidence would be substantially different between males and females, I don't know. Why the morphological um, 
structures would be different is clear. But let's say, for example, and I don't think there's a population on Earth for which this would be true. Yeah. But let's say, for example, that this population buried only its men, right? Maybe it does something else with its women. They've not been discovered or mm -hmm. the, the whatever the burial procedure was resulted in the complete destruction of those skeletons. So you had a population that was all male. And then you come at it with the assumption that half of these or something like half of them are likely to be female. And you start figuring out, well, which ones are the females? So your assumption causes you to impose femaleness on a population that doesn't have any, right? Again, I'm not saying that that's likely, but I'm saying we don't know. We're inferring a number of things. One, we are already, if they have it correct that some of these skeletons are female and that they are buried with what they call a full kit for big game hunting, then we are inferring that the implication of that is that these people use those kits in life and therefore in the afterlife would have some need of these kits, which makes perfect sense. I'm not arguing it doesn't make sense. It's the first level inference would be, yeah, they buried them with a kit of things that they would be likely to need in the afterlife and the afterlife is similar enough to life that one can infer their in-life behavior from this. But that's not a dead certain chain of argument. For sure. There, there's there's um, there's uncertainty at each step. Mm -hmm. uh, I will say that apparently, and this, again, I, this is not where I spent a lot of time thinking about this paper, but their citation for why they used all three of these methods for sex estimation in combination uh, is based on an also very new paper uh, called The Comparison of Proteomic, Genomic, and Osteological Methods. Actually, that's one genomic versus isotopic, I think, and isological methods of archaeological sex estimation, um, which I have not reviewed. Um, but anyway, they're, they're, they were using multiple methods yep. in order not to get, so apparently the osteological stuff can be spurious, but very rarely when combined. Right. Uh, so all I'm saying, so let me just say, I believe that they probably have this right mm -hmm. and that it probably does make the very interesting implication that they derive from it. My point is just that, um, we are caught in this bind where we're looking at a very tiny sample from one place. Mm -hmm. That very tiny sample, we are imposing a viewpoint on who is of what sex based on three kinds of evidence, none of which are secure in and of themselves, but together they make it much more likely that it's right, assuming that whatever we've used to calibrate these methods matches this population, yep. right? And the population could be distinct in some way. And then on top of that, assuming that we've got the sex of the skeletons right and uh, that therefore we know who's who, we are inferring things about a belief system from physical evidence that cannot possibly report the belief. Literally, all it can do is imply why else would you bury a person with a hunting kit if they weren't going to need it in the afterlife and why would you need it in the afterlife if you didn't need it in life that's so there are a lot of steps here where something could be weird and there could be something wonderful in what's weird and we might never find it we might mm -hmm. never know but the point is at some level the most parsimonious interpretation of the fossil or subfossil evidence that they've found is that women were engaged in this population in big game hunting in uh high andean south america uh, yeah, I think actually that that is right. Predictions of whether or not you can generalize that to um, to habitats outside of the particular one that they were in or to other moments uh, would be. Uh, I, I think there there are real limitations that I would predict only in certain habitats, and I'm not sure. Like one big question for me is, what game were they hunting? 
this is the Americas. Remember, this is you know this this is this is South America. I'm not. I don't. I don't know what they were hunting, and it's going how they were hunting is going to depend not just on their tools, which primarily it turns out were atlatls, um, but also on what it was they were hunting. So, but hold okay. on, um, it's going to depend on what tools they were using. You know, if 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 it's a bunch of men with hand axes, it's, if it's a bunch of people with hand axes, it's not likely to include women um, for reasons that we'll get to. And um, although cooperative hunting is what we're imagining here, it's really unlikely that um, that women are going to have been hunting alone, right? Like that, that men going out hunting alone, even in populations where cooperative hunting is the rule, uh, would certainly, I imagine, have happened sometimes, at least for some types of game. Um, but the prediction would be women are not likely to have to have done this alone. Um, we're also engaging in inference here. Um, but well, I mean, there's a number of places to go. I want one place I do want to go here is, um, we've got this national geographic article about this research, which has, uh, you know, of course, uh, an illustration that I think is quite misleading. Here's a woman, a, in a skirt, <laughs> B, um, hunting alone. And she is, I don't think she's in a skirt. Well, something, a tunic of some sort. Um, but she's but she's hunting alone. And I guess, you know, it is it's camelids that she's hunting, which is the only thing I came up with for what they would have been well, hunting. We've got spectacled bear is also a possibility. Yep. Um oh my god. Okay. Um so but not not there actually. So I don't it depends on what the actual habitat was like at the time. Because spectacled bear was would not have been above tree line, right? Spectacled bear uh, are are in sort of cloud and just above level of like montane forest in the Andes, but yeah. not above tree line, not in the sort of habitat that she is she is illustrated in in there. Um, and we have a quote in that article, um, which is paywalled. So I, I'm going to just read it to you rather than try to show it to you. Uh, a quote from an archaeologist who was not involved in the research, Kathleen Sterling, who says, um, "Did the newfound toolkit belong to the buried individual?" Sterling challenged the inquiry itself. We typically don't ask this question when we find these toolkits with men, she says. It's only when it challenges our ideas about gender that we ask these questions. Now, that strikes me as an attempt to shut down investigation. Um, you know, she, she appears to be questioning a, you know, until very recently, clearly male-dominated way of understanding the world that was present in archaeology. Um, but just because that is true does not mean that we shouldn't always question the inferences that we're making in what we find now. So I thought um, to sort of counter that, um, you know, apparently feminist critique of anyone who would question whether or not these were in fact women who were hunting big game, I wanted to read a tiny bit from this amazing book, one of my favorites. I can't, I don't know where the camera is. Mother Nature, Maternal Instincts and How They Shape the Human Species by the uh, extraordinary evolutionary biologist, Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy. And uh, I guess sort of an academic sibling of ours. She is an academic sibling of ours. She yeah. was a student of Bob Trivers. Yeah, um, exactly. And we are students of Bob Trivers. Yeah. Uh, so she wrote in this 2000 book, um, which I highly recommend, no doubt patriarchal bias played a role in Victorian and earlier ideas about motherhood. And yes, such bias biases permeate the writings of evolutionists from the 19th century onward. It was an all-male club, and unwittingly. Darwinians accepted the biased assumptions handed them on a platter by their predecessors, who were more nearly moralists than scientists. 
The same biases were still very much in evidence in 1975, for instance, when E.O. Wilson published his pioneering work on sociobiology, which included a notoriously inaccurate description of foraging societies that claimed that, quote, during the day, the women and children remain in the residential area while the men forage for game or its symbolic equivalent in the form of barter and money. Uh, a Victorian and a 1950s suburban ideal of mother tending the hearth was substituted for the actual life of a highly mobile Pleistocene gatherer. But Wilson, let's recall, was an entomologist and had to give himself a crash course in ethnography in order to write the chapter on humans for sociobiology. Perhaps more telling, professional anthropologists themselves failed to register this whopper. Even anthropologists who had actually helped collect the data indicating that a woman in a hunter-gatherer society might travel a full 1,500 miles in a year while carrying a year-old baby. The error was simply overlooked because it corresponded with expectations about how the world should appear. So we had we had a literature, we had fields that were utterly involved in sort of moralistic, unscientific, naturalistic fallacy type of thinking, um, in which they've in it was even like backwards naturalistic fallacy, right? They were they had an image of what they thought should be true, and they backfit even when um, even when the data suggested entirely opposite things. Yeah, it's women, confirmation women, bias. Yeah, and you know, w women um, have have were never sedentary and agriculture largely changed that. That, that was the moment um, that, that did transform um, sex roles uh, ra rather dramatically into being more and more divided in terms of the labor that we were doing. Um, but so, you know, that history is part of what uh, archaeologists Sterling and other people are pushing against, but it comes across as deeply anti-scientific and of course will get in the way of progress and of actually getting, to, you know, getting to understand what these data truly mean. So um, female hunter-gatherers were never sedentary, obviously. That's just, that's, that's not, that's not the job. Um, but <clears throat> were they big game hunters across lots of habitats on the regular or solo? Probably not, right? Because, well, upper body strength is remarkably lower in women than, than men. Um, on the other hand, the atlatl um, is pretty light. Uh, and, um, and I, I, I got to spend some time on worldatolatl.com today. Of I'm thinking about atolatls. Um, describes the action of throwing one, which I have never been lucky enough to do, as akin to that for throwing a ball or a stone. And so, you know, you don't, you, you can't throw like a girl um, from, you know, from the elbow. You have to throw from the shoulder. But, you know, anyone who actually is engaging in the physical world and throwing things is throwing from the shoulder. And, um, you know, depending on its weight, uh, it's a woman could be expected to throw it quite effectively in looking for what the weights of these things were, which I never did quite find, but they seem to be pretty light. Um, I came across a 2013 blog post from a female researcher at the Royal Saskatchewan museum, describing her experience in learning to throw atolatls while at an archeology span field school. And so this is just an anecdote, but I found it interesting. Quote, one of the grad students in the archaeology department had made the atlatl and had also manufactured one of his darts from a graphite rod that he had purchased. In no time, I was throwing that dart 100 meters with ease, and some of the other young men in the group were throwing the darts 300 meters. The darts disappeared out of sight when they threw them. She doesn't make a comment about this. She just she just says it. Um, so let me just, this is um, uh, Evelyn Siegfried. Um, who's at the Royal Saskatchewan Museum, um, who reports just this anecdote without any explanation, in part because, guess what, it's obvious. Mm -hmm. Of course men are going to throw things farther than women are. And we, you know, we, see, we see this in all, in all throwing sports. Um, less so, though, interestingly, in things like walking and even endurance running, 
the disparity between men and women at you know at, at top performance is a tiny fraction in walking and endurance running uh, as it is in things like throwing because our the disparity the average disparity in upper body strength for men and women is um, gosh, I can't remember, but something like 30 to 70%. I'm not sure about those numbers. Whereas the average disparity uh, between top um, top endurance runners, for instance, uh, men and women is closer to 10%. Mm, that's interesting. And, you know, and why? Well, in t- until we became um, people who had homes while we were still roaming, everyone had to keep up. Yeah. Right. Everyone had to keep up. And for a period, not only did women have to keep up, but they kept up while carrying their babies. And in fact, in many extant hunter-gatherer populations, women actually carry more load on average than men do. So women had to keep up with men and they tended to do so while carrying more load. And so, you know, this shouldn't surprise us that actually endurance in terms of locomotion is not that different. But that doesn't mean that we're not different in other ways in like upper body strength, which we are. Absolutely. All right, so I wanted to go down a little other road here. Great. Um, so I looked uh, carefully at the date that they believe these subfossil finds are from. They said about nine thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's right. That is, I believe, going to be well after the megafaunal extinction that happened, uh, coincident with the end of the last ice age. I think that is true, although I did not, I have not lined those up for sure. But the reason right. that it's relevant is that a what they were hunting might arguably have been a larger list if it was before that extinction had mm-hmm. completed, but also I've you know there is a debate, and I think the debate is actually headed in the wrong direction, or at least it was the last time we checked in with it about why the megafauna of the New World went extinct about the time people showed up. And it seems clear to some of us that the best, most parsimonious answer is that the megafauna of the new world, having never been exposed to people before, behaved rather like the fauna in the Galapagos currently does and what Darwin noted so clearly about it, which is Mm -hmm. that it just doesn't run away, right? It doesn't have uh, experience enough to know that a human being is a dangerous creature and um, therefore it is very easy for human beings to overhunt and that basically when your dinner is friendly right right when you you know when your your creatures just look at you curiously and you mm-hmm. can uh, can overwhelm them and so anyway one of the questions i had here was if i don't think that there's going to be a general and persistent pattern that yes in fact women have been doing a lot more of the big game hunting than we expect i think there's some tendency to evolve towards a division of labor on this mm-hmm. but that exceptions are likely to have happened this probably isn't the only one sure and it may be about something Right. Like, for example, it may be that as the continents of the Americas are not yet full with people, and I think they there's a strong argument to be made that they never were full, that they were still in the process. Those populations were growing at the point uh, that Europeans showed up. Even if there were 100 million people here before Columbus. Right. Arrived. And the estimates mm-hmm. are 50 to 100 million mm-hmm. people. And the question is, what, what would those numbers ultimately have become? Um, and what implication does it have that carrying capacity for these two continents, if you can use the concept in that way, had not been reached. And therefore, selection would be very different, right? It's not zero-sum selection. It's quite different, which I think would account for many distinctions. And one of them Mm. might be that, um, in effect, one does not need to be at peak 
hunting performance of the kind that would make males the much better uh, resource for the job because it may be that the hunting pressure on uh, these environments was somewhat less. Now, you have to be really careful with an analysis like that because sure. even if the continents were not at carrying capacity, it doesn't mean that your local habitat wasn't, mm -hmm. and obviously you hunt local to your habitat, so that's really where the rubber meets the road. But, um, but there's some question, I guess, as to at the point that human beings arrive in the Americas from, uh, from Beringia, what world did they face and what kind of hunting did it therefore reward? And then what was the evolutionary trajectory? In other words, prediction of this hypothesis would be the farther back you go from that 9,000 years ago date, the more female hunting you would see, right? And the closer you come towards modernity, the less you would see, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't know if we'll see that pattern or not, but oh, I think I love it's, the a, prediction. it's a valid prediction. Yeah, no, that's it's great. And it's, um, you know, if we trust this method of assessing whether or not there were female hunters, which, you know, with asterisk, 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 we've made all these caveats, um, but you, you could test that prediction simply by continuing to keep track of, um, you know, what the sex of those who are buried with full hunting kits. Uh, yeah, exactly. That mm -hmm. would be, yeah. If, if with an ability to age them and, you know, our aging, our dating techniques are, are, are pretty good. They are, if yeah. well calibrated, they're pretty darn good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm more doubtful about the sex assessment sure. on any individual find, right? If you really mm -hmm. have a population, then you can tell on the basis that mm -hmm. you really do have different averages. But yeah, so the problem here in part that you're, you're concerned about with regard to sex assessment is uh, with only whatever it was, 27 individuals, um, you and, you know, only in not none of them together you don't actually know what the representation for the population is. You actually, you don't have any idea. Right. You have yeah. no idea and, and nothing with which to calibrate it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, uh, that's that. Now I, I do have one other place. I hesitate to go here because I think the scientific discussion here is so good on its own. And frankly, you know, as much as there are places where I will raise skepticism about whether or not they got their sex assessment right and mm -hmm. whether or not the toolkits imply what we generally take such toolkits to imply. I do think, you know, if I had to guess, I bet you they found what they think they found, and it's pretty interesting, yeah. right? But uh, that analysis, if we put that just slightly to the side, and we say now we've got the problem of this analysis is now happening in the present. Now, you and I have argued that there is a renegotiation of the deal between the sexes that is long overdue, and that there are many things which may once have been uh, divided by sex as a matter of division of labor that have no reason to be in the present. And the realities of mating and dating have changed too as a result of birth control and many other factors. And so we it is the moment that we effectively have to renegotiate. We can't go back because the old stuff doesn't make sense in the modern world and a free-for-all doesn't work either. So renegotiating the deal is, is where, uh, where the smart money is. However, we are now in a context in which these um, narratives, you know, a scientific narrative about women having done or not done big game hunting in the past are going to be contentious by virtue of their implication or the implication that people will wrongly take for the present. You know, they will, they will uh, fall afoul of the naturalistic fallacy and they will want to read things into this. But so you, you go two ways here. One... You've got the likelihood that um, women were hunting big game. 
that uh, to the extent that evidence for that might have existed in past samples, that it might have been missed by academics who were very likely to be male and very likely even if they weren't male to view things through the eyes of ancestral academics who, you know, could make foolish errors like E.O. Wilson's uh, <laughs> imagining that women were, you know, back in camp, you know, keeping things tidy. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, there is a very real reason to worry that bias has been playing some role in these, in our ability to understand these stories or find them or look for them or whatever it would be. And so great that we have evidence that really does strongly suggest if through a series of assumptions that are all um, somewhat iffy, but does seem to suggest that there was some sort of a different deal in the Americas, at least high in the Andes, at least 9,000 years ago. There was some different deal between the sexes. That's cool. It's a model for the fact that actually these things can be renegotiated, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's all positive. On the other hand, we are now stuck with the possibility. Um, it, how do we know? Let's say that these... Um, skeletons that were buried with these big game hunting toolkits uh, were assigned male at birth and then were trans God. hunters. Okay? If we take... <laughs> really? Well... That's where we're going? Okay. Uh, here's my point, though. Mm -hmm. If they were assigned female at birth, trans, mm. and went hunting, then the answer is that, in fact, they were men. There's no news here. Right. <laughs> it it does point out the lunacy and, frankly, the misogyny of much of the modern trans ideology. Right. So what I really the point I'm really trying to make. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, a we're bypassing a tremendously good joke about uh, the authors of this paper having dead named these fossils, but <laughs> <laughs> or misgendered them or whatever they did. Something. But, um, but the real point here is... I guess you could dead name someone who was already dead. Yeah. Like and a double mean, dead name. That's them. worse because yeah. why, you know, you're kicking them when they're down. All right. <laughs> that's also a terrible <laughs> joke. But here's, here's my real point. My real yeah. point is, on the one hand, we have the awesome, messy, fascinating story of human sex and gender in one population that most of us, you and I spend a fair amount of time thinking about the high Andes, but most people don't, yeah. right? This marvelous story that just the hint that these fossils have of some different deal between the sexes that existed, right? Compare that to the mind-numbing story that you know, that actually there is no sexual binary and the whole scientific attempt to impose that on people is wrongheaded to begin with and they are, were whoever they felt like they were when they were hunting and there's nothing else to be seen here. That's a nonsense garbage story. And anyone who believed that 9,000 years ago uh, left no descendants. Right, exactly. If you were that confused as a hunter-gatherer, you weren't a very good hunter-gatherer. Yeah. Right. So anyway, the point, I guess, is, look, can we get over this stuff? And can we just embrace the cool, messy, interesting, sometimes awful story that is reality and stop trying to impose morality on it and, you know, purify it and police those who would dare think other thoughts? Yeah. Right? Let's. Okay, let's, good. All right. You, we'll, you and me will start with that agreement. I think, I think we should. Um, just one more thing that occurred to me uh, that I had not made the connection before with this paper. If this is 9,000 years ago in the Andes, we actually were at a site um, Chobshi, uh, that is thought to have been active about 8,000 years ago. So, you know, 
that's both a long time, a thousand years between those, but um, but perhaps the habitats were the same enough and the culture was the same enough, uh, in which people took cover in this really shallow cave and apparently hunted by funneling guinea pigs and rabbits and porcupines off a cliff and retrieving the corpses or perhaps having to kill the corpses, the, the not yet corpses at the bottom who were injured. Um, and then they turned those things into food and clothing. And so if we add that as another possible method, which we know, like Shobshi is a, is a well-documented um, and pretty well-studied archaeological site, um, you know, there would be there would be little reason not to have all members of the group who were living at this cave go down with their atlatls and dispatch uh, any animals that they wanted to eat who were injured at the bottom Actually, of the cliff. I, I love this. And, yeah. and, you know, whether or not that story is right or stands in for some other story, mm -hmm. it makes the point that actually you've got one population here which gives us one set of archaeological finds that suggests one unusual feature that we didn't expect. Mm -hmm. But who knows what the idiosyncrasies of the hunting environment were at that place. And as Chobshi shows, yep. you can have all kinds of things. You can have one particular cliff that, you know, animals don't see coming. And if you can scare them in that direction, they, you know, do most of the work for you. And so, you know, could this be responsive to an idiosyncrasy of the landscape? Was it an idiosyncrasy in time, you know, creatures that mm -hmm. were uh, more plentiful and less likely to run away? Who knows? But really, at some level, that's the fascinating thing is what were the sum total of inputs that caused selection to spit out this output? If, in fact, this output is what we think, what caused that? And yeah. it wasn't going to be one thing. It was going to be a combination of factors. That's right. All right. Good. Uh, I mean, we could keep going on, but uh, maybe that's that's that for now. So you wanted to talk about, um, oh yes, about our next topic. Yes, you want, you want to introduce this. Do you want Zach to show the screen or not? Um, sure. Why don't you show the the screen? So, what we have here is Kareem Carr, who is a PhD student at Harvard, who made a big splash several months ago on the topic of what on earth two plus two might possibly equal? And his point was all of you who think it's four um, are failing to grasp just how subjective and arbitrary mathematics is. And so in any case, the world descended into madness over this uh, for some time. Now two plus two equals five is also uh, an oblique reference to Orwell, 1984. This is... Um, I don't know, is it Newspeak or it's some sort it's, of... It's, it's, it's one of the modes by which you force a population to totalitarianism. If you can get people to agree that two plus two equals five, well, you're well on your way. Right. And just um, the, the kerfuffle from many months back was led on the side of no, two plus two actually does equal four um, by our friend Jim Lindsay. Yes. Um, so anyway, most people will remember that if they are on Twitter, at least they mm -hmm. will have seen some part of that battle. And Kareem has decided to um, blow on the embers of that battle to see if he can rekindle it. And I... And what does he said? So we can just... Yeah, yeah, I'll just get this off the screen. Read it. He's got two tweets here. He says, when someone says two plus two equals four in a really angry way, they're admitting that the statement can't what the statement can't do for itself. One can't calmly state it like a fact it is it supposedly is. One must back it up with a threat of force to make it stick. And this act affirms the spirit of two plus two equals five. He goes on. 
And he says, so even when they think they've won the argument, they're losing. Their defensiveness and anger is already a loss because it brings 2 plus 2 equals 4 into the subjective, where it belongs. So now, those two last points. Being angry brings the statement into the subjective, and the, subje the subjective is where it belongs. Yeah. Now, so the reason to be here is not just simply to harp on the absurdity of what Kareem Carr is saying and to try to parse it and finally get it right so people can finally understand why 2 plus 2 equals 4. Because as I said to him the first time through this, what he is engaged in is a classic example of sophistry, which is to say... His argument is hard to field, which doesn't say anything about its being right. And his argument, if you hmm. go back to his original claim, had to do with the fact that the symbols 2 and 5 and equals and plus are all something that we simply agree on, and there's no reason to agree that they equal this or that. And so they could equal other things, and therefore the statement 2 plus 2 equals 5 could be a totally reasonable statement as good as 2 plus 2 equals 4. And the answer is... God, that's not just sophistry. I mean, that's... But colloquially, people well, mean when they say semantics, and it's not actually semantics. It's but, not just sophistry, yeah. but he's not a PhD student just anywhere. It's Harvard-level sophistry, yeah. right? So anyway, that is what it is. That's not really the point to, to return here. The reason I wanted to return is that it struck me when I saw his new argument that this was actually an interesting opportunity. So uh, several years back, I think 2017, I gave a talk in Vancouver that I called How the Magic Trick is Done. Yeah, and How the fabulous. Magic Trick was done was basically a sort of a taxonomy of tricks and Kafka traps and uh, uh, other things that are causing um, the social justice ideology to actually wield a great deal of power in spite of the fact that the arguments that it's making are um, not correct in many regards. And what one does not typically see, so one of the things I said in that talk is that these techniques evolve. People try a lot of stuff, and the stuff that doesn't work doesn't leave a fossil, right? Hmm. The stuff that works gets picked up on, and it gets augmented, and it gets built into a very refined strategic structure that we realize needs to be talked about at the point that it comes for us and we can't field it because even though we may be right about something, it is very difficult to figure out how you deal with the incentives surrounding it. Yeah. So this Kareem Carr uh, next chapter here struck me as the rare case where you might be present for the birth of a new technique, right? If you think about his argument here, if people say two plus two equals four and they get angry about it, then their anger is an indication that 2 plus 2 does not inherently equal 4, right? Well, this is an amazing argument, right? This is stunning because what this says is, first of all, 2 plus 2 equals 4 is a baseline, nearly foundational level of societal agreement, right? We have to agree <laughs> yeah. what these symbols mean. You know, if we're going to establish truth at all, we've got to establish what the meaning of words is, what the meaning of symbols is, what the operations that they dictate are. And when somebody asserts that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is not inherently true, they are attacking something fundamental. I mean, you, you know, if you imagine, if we were to invalidate 2 plus 2 equals 4, so 2 plus 2 suddenly equals question mark, the modern world ceases to function 
instantly, right? There's no device that we're using that doesn't depend on that level of agreement and a great many things stacked on top of it. It's like um, many years ago, our younger son, Toby, asked me, what would it be like here if there was no gravity? And it's it's exactly that. There there wouldn't be. There's no here. Right. No, nothing, nothing that we know has happened in that world. And the same is true for two plus two equals what now? <laughs> right, exactly. So in some sense, what Carr is saying is we have the right to attack the very foundations of systematic thought. And we have a right to do so in a politically charged environment where those of us who are doing that are actually dictating policy. Not only are we saying two plus two equals five, but defund the police is, you know, a, a reasonable thing to demand. So it is natural that somebody who thinks, oh my God, how did two plus two equals five get out of Orwell and into the world? And, you know, why is it marching, right? Mm -hmm. That could make a person very nervous. They might be right to be nervous. And they might speak with a certain amount of urgency and saying, no, two plus two equals four, <laughs> God damn it, right? And the point is that has nothing to do with whether or not two plus two does or does not equal four. That just has to do with the fact that what is in jeopardy if it doesn't equal four is really important. Yeah. So, but it's but it's as you say, a slick rhetorical move that probably just dies here, but maybe not. So, I mean, this is it's like it's like a reformulation of Ben Shapiro's famous "facts don't care about your feelings." This new formulation is feelings about facts change the facts. Yes. Feeling, feelings about facts are all you need to figure out whether those facts are in fact factual. Right. Um, so, and then the final point I would make is I, I want people to understand just how beautiful and diabolical his formulation is, right? So let's right. say that, let's give him the benefit of the doubt here and let's say, okay, for the, uh, for the uh, purposes of this argument, his uh, assumption is to be taken literally. If a person responds angrily to the idea that 2 plus 2 equals 5, then they imply that 2 plus 2 does not equal what they think it equals. Okay. Now let's apply that across the population. Okay. What if all of us but one decides, you know what? I'm going to say this very calmly. 2 plus 2 equals 4. My hand does not shake. <laughs> I am not raising my voice. Two plus two simply equals four, and that needs to remain true, right? But one person isn't so good at keeping their, their calm, yeah. right? They're cool, and they get angry because they're worried, right? Well, that one person has now invalidated two plus two equals four and left us in a world where two plus two now yeah. equals I'm your new king and you will bow before me. That guy's anger blew up the universe. Blew up the universe. And so in any case, what I'm hoping is that our discussing this here on Dark Horse will result in um, this particular uh, attempt to generate a new super weapon <laughs> failing because people will realize just how crazy it is. Um, but nonetheless, maybe the point is it's actually sophisticated enough as a strategy that in spite of this analysis, it will continue to grow and be augmented and wielded and we will see it uh, morph into all sorts of things out in the world. Uh, we don't know yet. Well, I mean, in part, in part, it may well work. In part, what we're doing here may not touch the effectiveness of the strategy precisely because we are trying to do analysis. And if the strategy works, it will work exactly on the emotional level. Right. Yeah. It, it will it will affect how people view things um, because they will have been informed by the emotional content of people who are certain that actually if you claim two plus two equals four, well, then you're probably a fascist or some such. Yeah. 
Uh, absolutely. So it could, it could be both. We could do the analysis and it actually might have an influence in a particular quadrant, but have no impact on, uh, the utility of this right. argument. It could still battle. be an evolutionarily stable strategy, even if it's dead wrong. Yes. You mm -hmm. didn't raise your voice. You said dead wrong in a strong way, but the amplitude was perfectly it's consistent. A little, little sarcastic maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But that suggests strength. Oh, does so it? I think, I think actually that oh, okay. works in reverse we're of good. his argument. We're good then. All right. <clears throat> um, uh, third item of, of four, um, people's generosity in, um, across the country, but with regard to people in Portland, uh, s seems to be being used to help out criminals. <laughs> pray tell, what might you be talking pray, about? Pray tell. Um, let's see, uh, the, before we show, before we show the screen, uh, funds that were created to pay bail for people who were arrested while engaging in vandalism or assault or whatnot during the protests and especially during the riots in Portland have been, wait for it, abused by those receiving the bail money. Who would have thunk? Color me fucking shocked. <laughs> Color you fucking shocked. All right, <laughs> yes. yeah. Uh, so here, just let's show the the tweet before you start talking about yep. it. Uh, from Defense Fund PDX, some folks think that bail funds can sustain themselves because most bail eventually gets refunded. In Portland, bail paid is returned to the person arrested, not the person that paid the bail. We have paid over $100,000 in bail since May. We've only had a few folks return their bail to us. If you've had your bail refunded, please consider sending it back to us if we paid it. You can return it via any of the methods found at the link in our profile. If you want to mail a check, DM for our mailing address. Gee, shocked <laughs> people who are arrested for criminal behavior and get their bail paid for them from the generosity of well-meaning liberals, I would think, mostly. Um, but there's no expectation tied to it at the point that they actually show up for what would it be their arraignment. Um, is, it that, is that when you get your bail back? At whatever point uh, in the process, you show know. up and you get your bail back. They get their bail back. It's not theirs, but they take it and they keep it because, of course, they do. Yes. Yeah, so I should tell you, uh, at one point during the portion of these riots that was attacking the uh, the courthouse downtown, yeah, um, I went down there spiking around and I saw two people who were part of this bail fund standing next to a sign about donating to it and utilizing it and all of this. And I was shocked because, A, the whole idea of a bail fund uh, certainly intervenes in the incentive structures surrounding these riots in a way that immediately it was obvious, like, oh, what you're doing is you're dropping the cost of rioting. If you're mm -hmm. arrested during a riot, I mean, A, the state abuses these um, penalties. So one of the things, let's leave rioting out of it for mm -hmm. a moment. If you are protesting peacefully, you can be arrested for all kinds of violations, trespassing, uh, protesting without a permit, all sorts of stuff. Yes. And it's a nightmare for people that it happens to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, basically- We had friends up in Olympia to whom this happened. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole set of undeclared penalties that come in the form of bureaucracy that surrounds you getting your due process, right? So it's it's an actual actual nightmare. And in fact, the cops, when they're going to arrest people at a protest, will often give them a choice, right? They will say, do you want to be arrested? 
And the basic point is, if you don't want to be arrested, then you have to do what we say. And if you mm. do want to be arrested, then don't do what we say, and we're about to arrest you, and then those penalties will kick in. And mm -hmm. so anyway, it's a sort of uh, unspoken uh, rule under normal protesting. But in this case, you've got people who are rioting. You've got other people who are signaling their virtue. The riots are ostensibly about challenging racial inequity. Right, they're not, but they say they are. You've got people who want to advertise that they are in favor of racial equity, who are signaling this by donating to this fund to bail out these people who are really in, you know, in this portrayal, uh, uh, misbehaving, you know, in civil disobedience, right? right? Um, and by the latter day Thoreau's, <laughs> <laughs> by lowering the penalty here, you are increasing the uh, incentive to continue. Yeah. Right now, if this if these were really peaceful protests and they were really about injustice, that would be one thing. But in the context where they are um, actually attacking courthouses and trying to pick a fight with the cops and demonizing people and threatening to kill them and all of those things, it's preposterous to lower those costs. But what it turns out is that it's even worse than I thought by a lot mm -hmm. because what's really happening is that those who are donating to reduce the cost of being arrested are in effect paying people to engage in those behaviors that get you arrested. So what you have is people behaving in a destructive and violent way whose bail is then being paid, they are freed, and uh, when they get the money back, it comes to them. So it is a payment scheme for those who are behaving in, in these in, in these ways. And, and what a perfect tell for whether or not these people actually uh, believe in the values that they espouse. Most of, most of these... Uh, these people will tell you that there's something akin to socialists, yep. um, or you know, or farther, farther left than that, right? And um, the the honorable, the important, the valuable part of socialism is returning that which belongs to the community to the community, right? Yep. Um, is if you have a fund that is a pool that is designed to help people like you, and you have been helped in the past. Um, you keep that pool alive um, by returning it to the pool when you are done. Um, this is, you know, this this is human decency 101, but it's certainly important um, if you espouse any kind of collectivist uh, thinking. And anyone's failure to pay back that reveals them as exactly the opposite. Yeah, individualistic um, at at it's at bad core. faith. Yeah, it's bad faith. Um, and at some level, this is subsidized anarchism. And when you ask yourself why it is that Portland has ongoing uh, destruction of property and violence, you know, uh, then this is part of your answer is that when you apply these principles locally in this ham-fisted way, what you do is you end up paying people to riot, mm -hmm. um, which is an absurd thing to pay people for, right? It's, uh, it's the most absurd jobs program conceivable. <laughs> God. <laughs> Yes. Okay. So, um, you feeling pretty far right? Uh, not as much as some people would have you imagine. Yeah. 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 Neither am I. Um, never have. Um, we now we now have a number of of conservative friends. Yeah, I and wouldn't say any far right. But. Nope. No, no one far right by usual standards. But, um, so. Hold on, my computer is taking me a long time to pull this up. This uh, is in a preprint server as of what, this week, last week? Um, uh, this week, okay. I believe. Um, so for those of you listening, not watching, up. 
Yeah, so that's last week, last I guess. Week, yeah. Um, well, that's when you downloaded it, or is that? No, anyway, I think that's, that's when it posted. Yeah. Okay. So for those listening, not watching, this is uh, Hoys- oh boy, I'm gonna butcher her name, Hossein Marty, perhaps. At all, a six authored, um, yeah, six authored, a preprint that is to be published in a peer reviewed journal, presumably, um, published just two weeks ago, a week and a half ago, called Ev- Evaluating the Scale, Growth, and Origins of Right Wing Echo Chambers on YouTube. And uh, just, Zach, may I have my screen back for a minute? Um, just to jump to uh, one of the main conclusions here. Uh, this paper makes the claim that the channel you are watching now, if you are watching this YouTube channel, Brett Weinstein's YouTube channel, along with Sam Harris, Benjamin Boyce, Mike Nana, Gad Sad, Rebel Wisdom, many others, are far right. And that's on a that's on a five point scale. We got far left, left, center, right, and far right. Fox News is right. We're far right. We're far right. Yeah. Fox News is right, and we're far right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and. You have, let me see if I can pull this up. Uh, Sorry, this is going to take me a minute. Here we go. Um, This is page 26 of the article. The text of the article is actually very short, but there's um, many, many pages of appendices and and references and such. Here we have label aggregation. Um, How did they decide whether or not you were far right, right? center left or far left? Well, they relied heavily on um, a few references. And here is this this bullet point here, the far right, um, any, oops, any channel labeled as alt-light, art-right, alt-right, IDW, or MRA, men's rights activists, by reference 20, or conspiracy, IDW, alt-right, MRA, alt-light, religious conservative, uh, by reference 23, or right, or conspiracy, or alt-right. Um, so let's just talk very briefly about a couple of these references. 20, um, reference 20, which is a big part of where they are. Hey, Zach, and I, um, thank you. Um, a big part of where they are basing their assessment uh, is a reference that doesn't even exist online. Uh, you have, it's Ribeiro et al. 2020, and when you search here on Google Scholar, um, it looks like it undid some of my search, but uh, you find, oh, that's super interesting. Between my search a couple of hours ago and right now, it is now showing up. Um, so that's, that is new and it's taking a while. Um, okay, so this is... Um, the basis by which they this this paper is the basis by which uh, the paper we're talking about is deciding whether or not um, channels are um, are far right. And here, this is the first time I've seen it because I literally it was not up a couple of hours ago. We analyzed three hundred and thirty thousand nine hundred twenty-five videos posted on three hundred forty-nine channels, which we broadly classified into four types: media, the alt-light, the intellectual dark web, and the alt-right. And what they say um, is, or what the Hoysen Marty uh, et al. paper says, is that they um, that that reference that we just were looking at was based largely on the data data and society mm. paper um, from uh, from what a year or two ago, which your brother yeah. Eric Weinstein roundly um, roundly criticized uh, with some with some clarity. 
I would say he debunked it. Yeah, it's um, it's total garbage, right? Um, so you know that the, the and frankly the 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 take home with regard to this part of what we want to talk about is if you have been identified as a member of the IDW or are claiming to be in the IDW intellectual dark web this this term that your brother that Eric Weinstein invented, um, then you are all right. End of story. Not, Not all, all right. right. Sorry, far right. End of story. That's 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 it, um, and that that is the claim made in this paper that simply if you're IDW, you're, you're far right, and um, and please stop bothering us now. But that that can't even be true, can it? Because um, if that was in fact the sole basis of the categorization, then obviously Eric himself would be far right, and he's categorized as center. So there must be more to their categorization scheme. Uh, than is apparent. Were you headed somewhere? No, I, yes, but go on. Well, I was just going to say, uh, what's more, reference 23, is it? Mm-hmm. Were you about this to one. go there? Yep. Um, <clears throat> reference... the, the other primary uh, reference that they relied on in this paper. So uh, when challenged in this paper, and I challenged uh, the authors of this paper on Twitter, and one of the authors, David Rothschild, uh, responded extensively, his point was, look, we borrowed our categorization from these other references, and uh, we did the analysis well, and we were playing about the fact that we had done that. But in fact, that's not the case. And uh, Mark Ledwich contacted me pointed me to a thread of his in which he showed that the analysis which this uh, Huss and Marty paper um, claims to be utilizing, uh, in fact, doesn't match their own categorization. And I looked at uh, Ledwich's um, paper, and in fact, it categorizes us as center. So there's something very interesting going on here where, in effect, the Hassan Marty paper simply asserts that IDW is far right, mm-hmm. right? It hard codes that into their analysis. And um, this, I think, has every danger of being used as a pretext for barring channels from uh, from YouTube in particular. And, you know, this paper was about um, YouTube. So where, where were you headed? You're talking. Go on. Um, so I wanted to point out a number of things. One, what would it mean for this channel? To, so uh, the Ledwich paper um, categorizes our channel as anti-SJW but center. And actually this matches, I think, what the content of this channel uh, repeatedly does. And we can go through some of the things people will have heard us talk about. Let me interrupt you here a moment. I did not spend a lot of time uh, with the... Um uh, what is it? The Ledwich and uh, Zaitsev paper. Yep. Um, but the paper on which they based much of their um, no, the the Hoysenmani paper um, is only actually looking at data from 2016 to 2019. Um, so you know we'll we'll get here, I think. But um, fascinating to me that you know I just went back and looked. At that point, we hadn't begun our live streams at all. So I think there's a couple of videos that I show up in in, yep. in, in earlier, but your channel had forty. Brett, your, your channel had forty three videos up uh, at that point. Um, here they are. Uh, it includes such uh, far right questions as why do plants make medicine, 
um, sympathy and empathy and evolutionary perspective, marriage as an evolutionary phenomenon, in here somewhere, what do bowerbirds want, <laughs> um, and, and, and so on. And, you know, the only, you know, we've got uh, a somewhat conservative voice here in Douglas Murray and a conservative voice in Andy No. Um, here you are criticizing um, Stephen Steven Crowder. Crowder. Um, you know, Chloe's no, Chloe Valdery is no conservative. John Wood is. But again, conservative and far right are not the same thing. And certainly Katie Herzog isn't and Mike Nina isn't and Sam Harris isn't. Cetera, yeah, it's a wide right. diversity. It's what yeah. you would expect from a centrist yeah. A centrist channel. But I guess asking what Bowerbirds want is now far right. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I wanted to, I don't know what order to do this in. Yeah. Um, but first of all, there's some question and there was some consternation online about whether or not the analysis was claiming that the channel was far right or the audience was far right. Now, it's very clear from the paper that what it's saying is that the channel is far right um, and not the audience. And we can talk about what it would mean if the audience was far right, which it also isn't. But um, Zach, could you? I think it just is agnostic about the audience. Of I don't course. think I don't, it's not suggesting that the audience isn't. It's in fact, it, it, in in some ways, actually, because it, it concludes that actually this isn't due to YouTube suggestions. It is due to inherent choices of people watching YouTube. So it is kind of you know cl closer to making the argument that the that the viewership also is of the political ideology that they're assigning us to, whatever, right? Um, then other arguments, other analyses, which are just saying, actually, it's the YouTube algorithms that are that are, that are are radicalizing people. Right. So they took their contribution to be... Um, they took whose contribution? Who took The whose? Hassan Marty paper uh -huh. sees its contribution as another mechanism that is not the result of the suggestion algorithm radicalizing people. Yes. So, but here's the point. Okay. Is the channel far right? Zach, could you put up the uh, political compass test? That's my political compass mm. test. I've taken it several times. Now, I take uh, no pride in the fact that my dot is hanging there off almost the farthest left edge it can be hanging off. It's there for reasons um, that I think are um, quite clear. What I would say is, uh, as I've said many times, I believe we have to engage in radical change or we will perish. I think radical change is frightening. We should be very, very cautious about it, but I don't think we have a choice about it. That said, people have also heard me say that markets are by far the best mechanism we have for figuring out how to do things, right? So why is my dot so far down in the libertarian end? It's because I believe that actually meritocracy is the best mechanism and markets are the best mechanism. But why am I on the far left edge? Because I believe we are far from a meritocracy in which everybody has access and um, that markets have this uh, frightening dual role where they're very good at figuring out how to do things and they're absolutely terrible at figuring out what we should do. And so anyway, it, it explains that dot. Can I just clarify possibly one thing that you said, which is that in the past you have clarified that you would love to live in a world in which you could be a conservative, right? Yep. Um, you have no interest in trying to live in a world without markets because you, like I, understand that markets will always exist and that trying to, uh, that we need well-regulated markets 
that an utterly free and unregulated market um, is a recipe for disaster, but that trying to obliterate markets uh, will also end in disaster. Yeah, and I right? also so you're not say, trying you're not seeking a world without markets. Um, right, yeah, right. No, I want a market. I want a world in which markets are freed to do what they do very, very well. And um, and you're right. I don't want to be a progressive. I want to live in a world where we're doing so well that progress would be a mistake. And I know we don't live there. Yeah. Um, so, so you showed you showed your political compass test, but maybe even though the information um, in this paper, which makes this channel far right, um, basically doesn't include me at all. But it's possible that I'm dragging you down. Maybe I'm maybe oh, I'm you're the maybe I'm the right, right wing. I have wondered about that. Yep. 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 So here's. My political compass test. Oh, God. Um, I am farther right than you You're are. You're right of me. Yep. And, uh, and well, still. And still. Okay. So yeah. so here, here's, I think, the there are several points that we need to make. One is, if your goddamn method looked at this channel and decided we're far right, your method sucks, right? You can just tell that. This diagnoses your method, and your method is garbage, Okay. So what I would say is we are not the only channel that got caught up in this. Lots of channels that are clearly nothing like far right. And I would say, although you and I are, I would argue, far left, our channel is center because the point is we are analyzing uh, perspectives from all over the map and, you know, basically it's heterodoxy. Mm -hmm. And um, Well, and we, we are also specifically challenging the errors on the left more than we are actively challenging the errors on the right because it's our own home. Mm -hmm. Like, th this is the place where we live and the right should clean up their messes, should prioritize on cleaning up their messes, and the left should prioritize cleaning up their messes, and we should all be able to come together and convene. And, you know, we do take some some shit from people uh, for not, you know, for instance, for not criticizing Trump enough. And you know what? A, it's been done um, to the degree that we have had any, you know, unique perspectives on what's wrong with Trump. I think we've said it, but it's been, it's been rare because he is so, you know, so fully analyzed. I was going to say well analyzed, and I don't think it's been particularly well done. Um, but, but the fact is that when you see the thing that you are come to have some sort of a, of a pathogen in it, um, of course you're focused there as opposed to the more distant enemy. Um, yes, I, I think that's, uh, that's quite right. Um, but I also do want to take a brief step down the road of, well, you know, what about this maybe has to do with audience and point out that even if it were true, our audience is not far right. We know this. We know that there's a good deal of right of center stuff, but I would say it is center to the extent that there is a bias in the audience. It might be center right. Mm -hmm. um, but let's say that there were far right people listening, right? To rate that as a radicalization problem, if you have two people with political compass tests that look like ours and people from the far right are listening to us, isn't that a success? Isn't that good that people who maybe, you know, are too extreme to be reached in general are actually hearing somebody from the far other end of the spectrum and that that might be de-radicalizing them? And, you know, to the extent that you just want to put together a giant list, and I must say this is the moment of putting together giant lists. <laughs> Right. To the extent that you want to compile a giant list of people and you want to say that Gad Sad and Sam Harris and Brett Weinstein and uh, Benjamin Boyce and Shoe on Head and all of these Mike people, Nana, yep. Mike Nana. Right. If you want to just shove us all into a corner where we not only don't have to be listened to, but you can safely um, 
dismiss us as contributing to the problem, then you're actually contributing to the problem, right? You're mm-hmm. you're you're making this um, uh, a worse phenomenon. So uh, the fact that the method doesn't work, that it is predicated on at least one paper in which the authors of that paper are alarmed at the abuse of their work, in which the authors of that paper on which this current paper is predicated reached a different conclusion, in other words, ranked us as center rather than far right, mm-hmm. um, that suggests that whatever they're doing, they're not even doing it um, well or consistently or accurately. That's right. um, and then this raises a question, which is, why? Why are they doing this, right? Now, I was shocked when I saw this paper. You have something you want to add? Just maybe before you go into why, um, yeah. can we show Anna Zaitsev, whose name I'm probably mispronouncing, um, who was the one of the co-authors on one of the papers um, that was supposedly used to build these categories and who objected strongly to those categories, um, posted a long, excellent piece on Medium, which for some reason isn't coming up right now, but we'll put it in the description of the video. Um, the final paragraph of which is, as a researcher, my greatest goal is to find the truth about YouTube algorithms, radicalization, and political bubbles. I am confident that our prior study and websites recfluence.net and transparency.tube offer currently the most thorough, accurate, nuanced, and technically the most advanced representation of the political spheres on the platform. So I just thought we should show these two um, very, very briefly. This is rec. It's recfluence, R-E-C-fluence.net. I've plugged in your name. Um, the tags, you know, it's it's not a complete listing of tags at all, of course. Um, but of these tags on the left here, and I'm not going to read them all. I apologize for those uh, of you just listening, not watching. Um, but the tag um, that your channel, that this channel gets, Brett, is anti-SJW. Mm-hmm. Not religious conservative, obviously, but not conspiracy, not partisan right. Um you know, certainly, you know, not even not anti-theist, um, none of those. Uh, and, you know, if we if we plug in just, you know, well, let's see. What, what, will, what will your brother come up as? I don't know why this isn't working. There we go. Um, same, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, his, his connectivity is slightly different here. And if you scroll down, you see, um, you know, like, like for you, um, connections to, you know, Sam Harris and the Rubin Report and Powerful JRE. Um, and then the other site that um, that the co-author of the paper uh, mentions is this one, transparency.tube, where you can just plug in any channel and find out what tags, and this is just a slightly different set of tags, um, this channel seems to come up with. And in this one, you're anti-woke and center. Anti-woke and center. And that's that sounds right for, for this channel, right? And so the options here are mainstream news, partisan left, partisan right, anti-woke, social justice, late night talk show, state funded, conspiracy, religious conservative, politician, libertarian, anti-theist, socialist, manosphere, QAnon, and white identity white identitarian, which interestingly and not surprising at all to me, um, is, is a tiny number of sites, um, with a tiny number of views compared to all the rest of them. And yet that's, that's the big bugaboo. That's what everyone is actually scared of. Well, mm, that gets back to why. Yes. Good. So this question about whether that's what people are scared of, and people of course have a right to be scared of white identitarianism, 
Um, but there's a question about how great a danger it poses, whether that danger is worse in the context of a woke revolution that is um, basically defining people by skin color in a way that um, is liable to create that menace, which I have argued on this channel. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so there's several, there's several points I wanted to make. One, I consider the fact that lefties have a channel that is center to be something of a triumph because what we're striving for here is to be objective. And the reason I think we come out as center is because um, basically you have political teams evolving. And if you are committed to figuring out what the accurate perspective is on a wide diversity of topics, what you get is something that doesn't match any team's slate of beliefs, right? Yeah. You get a la carte uh analysis and well, and given the options partisan left and partisan right we explicitly have always but um also on this channel aim not to be partisan right we you know we we, we believe what we believe and we are seeking to understand reality but partisanship should not be part of that right which is i think the the hazard here mm -hmm. is that you know you could say the very same thing about joe rogan for example mm -hmm. right Joe Rogan himself is a liberal, quite clearly, mm -hmm. right? He has people from across the political spectrum, and he treats them honorably. And I think something has understood him to be a great danger, not because he's either on the far right or because he appeals to the far right, but because if you are trying to control the narrative and wield power on its basis – heterodoxy is dangerous. And so how do you get people to punish heterodoxy? You portray it as something dangerous in and of itself. In other words, if you take the people who are navigating the center, who are heterodox, who aren't putting up with bullshit, and you can portray them as somehow in league with a bunch of white identitarians, then you can explain why you're purging them from platforms. And this may sound hyperbolic, except, you know, Articles of Unity was... Uh, suspended from Twitter, remains suspended. I was kicked off Facebook without explanation and then brought back with an obviously phony story. Um, Jordan Hall has been kicked off Facebook. As far as I know, he has not been restored to it. So, you know, we've got this thing on the march, which is actually deciding who has access to the world through these platforms and who doesn't. And there is every reason to fear, whether it is the explanatory in the case of this paper or not, there's every reason to fear that those who have something to lose in a proper heterodox analysis of the world conspiring to get rid of voices that they cannot beat on a level playing field. And that is my concern here, is mm. whether or not th this set of authors, and we need to get back to who these authors are and why that matters, but whether or not these authors were motivated by whatever it is that caused data and society to release that terrible report. In other words, if there's some behind the scenes thing that wants to create reports that will justify purging people from platforms, mm -hmm. or whether they are simply responding to the fact that there is demand for papers like this, right. and therefore they are basically you know, evolving into a niche where they haven't been part of any such discussion, doesn't really matter. Because the role that's going to be played by a paper like this is to justify action. And, you know, what happened in this paper? Well, you had heterodox voices simply hard-coded, grouped in with unsavory voices in a way that then appears to be the conclusion of the paper. 
right? Mm -hmm. It was built in as an assumption and it appears to be the conclusion. And the conclusion, if all you do, and you know, uh, it occurred to me that a paper like this functions rather like an end user license agreement. The number of people who are actually going to read this paper is tiny. The number who will understand it is even smaller than that. Mm -hmm. And so the real point is, well, what was their conclusion? Oh, we've got this far right thing and it comes from something other than recommendation algorithms. What can we do about it? Yeah. Well, there's no reason we have to give these people platforms, is there? Yeah. Um, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Be, before you get back to, you said you wanted to talk about the authors, but um, as I was reading it this morning, this paper, um, which somehow I had remained uh, ignorant of until last night when you mentioned it for the first time, um, I was thinking about how it is that we do animal behavior. And I used, I, as you know, I used to teach students how to do animal behavior um, quite a lot with a, with a strong focus on epistemology, on how it is that we make claims of truth, uh, and on um, the entire part of the research process, not just the statistics, not just the experimental design, not just the hypothesis generation, not just the communication of uh, everything at the end, but the entire thing from, from pattern recognition and you know, initial observation of, of what it is that you think might be true to hypothesis generation, a full slate of hypotheses, et cetera, um, that, you, that could possibly explain the phenomenon. And I was imagining um, a student new to this, you know, an 18 year old perhaps, who decided that they wanted to study territorial behavior in ducks, which was a fairly uh, common thing that students uh, would do because ducks are common enough and, and territorial enough that you could actually um, you could actually see this happen, whereas in a 10-week project, it's hard to see animals do much if you actually go out and try to find it. Um, but say you now, the, one of the first things you need to do is figure out what, what it is that you're calling territorial behavior. Right, and one of the one of the things that people who haven't done animal behavior don't realize is that if you go in with an idea of what territorial behavior is, and then anytime you see something that reminds you of territorial behavior, you call it territorial behavior. You have simply fed your assumptions into your work, and when your work spits out your assumptions back at you, when you look surprised, um, you're fooling yourself in the world. That's not science. It's terrible. Right? It's it is it is absolutely not science. But it's a it's how a lot of this is done, actually. A lot of published work operates that way. You plug in your assumptions into your model, whatever it is, even if you're not using some kind of a fancy statistical model, and you get those assumptions fed right back out at you. Um, and guess what? You're really not supposed to be surprised at the point that that happens. So if you went out and started looking at ducks, and you see um, some males actually up in the water on each other and you know bumping breasts and, and, um, and engaging with each other, you would have to very carefully code what actually you receive but there's a good chance that that actually is some kind of an altercation, either over a potential mate or, or a territory. Um, you still have, don't know that for sure, but um, let's let's put that in the probably you can take data on that sort of thing with clarity enough um, and and make an argument that that is territorial behavior. But maybe you're also, because you know what a territory is and it's about defending a, a, a perimeter, um, you're observing some, some ducks uh, swimming along what you've, what you've identified as a perimeter and occasionally coming up against a, another male duck and, um, and, and then engaging in one of these you know, breast-to-breast altercations. You know, okay, well, sometimes um, patrolling the perimeter is also territorial behavior, good. And then you say, well, maybe whenever they're anywhere near that line at all, it's territorial behavior. Well, maybe whenever they swim in the way that they do when they're near that line, it's territorial behavior. 
maybe whenever they're kind of anywhere near an area that I've seen them at other moments engage in territorial behavior, it's territorial behavior. You see how your expansion of categories can, can, can grow, um, and it you know, will make your data collection easier because now you have more and more examples of territorial behavior, the problem being it's not really territorial behavior. What you've collected is a whole bunch of observations of things, a tiny sliver of which may in fact be territorial behavior, but most of which is not. And then no matter how good the rest of your work is, no matter how good your experimental design is or your observational design, which is a totally legitimate way to test hypotheses and analytic behavior, no matter how good your statistics are, your analysis, um, your description, your literature review, all of this, no matter how good all the rest of it is, it's not science. The research is crap because the categories that you put your observations into were simply wrong. And that, I think, is exactly what's going on here. Yes. And in fact, um, I have heard and see in this paper that there is some properly done work, quite a bit of it, well, exactly. in this paper, mm -hmm. properly done on a garbage data set. And so, well, no, I don't, I don't even think the data set is garbage, right? I think the labels on individual things, the labels, the yeah, categories, the bins, right? But if you just, if you strip the labels and relabeled, um, what, what we saw by, um, uh, boy, what was his name? Mark Ledwich, um, says, actually, I think a lot of this work was well done, but they took my and Zaitsev's data and strangely categorized. I don't know what they did. Um, well, you and I are going to get into a thing over this because I, yeah. and you know, the same thing would go for Mark Ledwich, which is um, A, when I'm saying that the data set is garbage, I mean with the labels, mm -hmm. right? I'm not saying that you couldn't analyze these channels independent of those labels and get a reasonable analysis, but the but the point is, there is no such category as um, this is good work, but for the fact that what you fed into it spit out a conclusion that you started with. Right? Okay, let me just. So the fact mm. that the math, the fact that the quantitative work is well done, I think, speaks to the fact that the nature of this paper is in fact pseudo quantification, and it has strong confirmation bias. It suffers from overfitting. And that it is, in fact, ironic that it suffers from overfitting because three of the authors of this paper have written another paper on overfitting. So they're, in fact, so well-versed in overfitting that they completely understand what it is and yet have fallen into this trap. And so my feeling is I don't know why it happened, but a paper in which you um, apply a mathematical method correctly to a data set on which it is not justified – is a bad paper. Okay. I don't, I'm actually not convinced that they've overfit their data. And I'm not convinced that they've engaged in pseudo quantification. Um, and I think our disagreement is uh, about this category of garbage data set. Um, there, there are multiple ways for a data set to be garbage on which you should not then do analysis. And um, in my mind, the, the sort of platonic ideal of garbage data set to, for which that term should probably be reserved is a data set that is fraudulent at some level, in, in which the data themselves um, have, been, um, have been either made up or specifically biased. In this case, you have um, a kind of fraud in terms of the categories, the labels, but you could fix 
the data set by changing the labels and everything else about it, we are told, and this is not our wheelhouse, I can't assess the the mathematical analysis here, right? I just, I don't have the skills. Um, but we are told by someone who does, yeah, I think actually the analysis was good, but the categories are so bad that you cannot trust the results. Well, That's I, a different kind of garbage data set than one in which the data themselves aren't good. I don't care that it's a different kind of garbage data set. It's a garbage data set. And the fact is the net effect is overfitting confirmation bias and the i mean it's like saying if your lab did 20 experiments of the same kind and got one statistically significant result and you published that one that you would say oh well that paper was good no that paper wasn't good if you knew that this you had like that. well it's a lot like that because what you what you have is a competent use of techniques on things that these authors of all people should understand are not justified. You, you cannot apply these techniques to that data set encoded in this way and get anything out that isn't the conclusion that you started with. But it's just the encoded in this way part that is, as far as I can tell, the problem. I don't think that anything else um, in it is is wrong here. And, and I think you may be objecting because it sounds like I'm saying it's just this one little thing. This one little thing is foundational. And without this one little thing being correct, it renders the entire interpretation and the rest of the paper null and void, frankly. And, right. it, should, and, it, and it, it shouldn't have gotten through peer review. It, right? well, it, it hasn't. But, okay. Um, but, um, because, but, because it really, it, 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 it really is a kind of um, scientific malpractice. But... There are a lot of other steps at which they could have done bad work and they didn't. And that is not a justification for the bad categorization. And no. bad categorization is not a trivial thing I at don't, all. I don't accept this. These people, these are not uh, unsophisticated people. Take True. a look at that author list. All right. Uh, hold on. Here we go. Okay. Uh, you, you have... You can show this. First yeah. of all, you have... Um, these are top flight institutions. There we go. You've Penn. Got Penn. Harvard, mm -hmm. Santa Fe Institute, Microsoft Research, um, and you have this prior paper on overfitting, so they're aware of the hazard. You have top flight people at highly, uh, at important institutions wielding techniques that they either do understand and wielded badly or don't understand and should have. And the fact that they did some of the work right constitutes no part of a defense of what they released, especially in light of the fact that what they released actually stigmatized people with channels and put them in a situation with respect to platforms that decide whether or not we have access to the world. There's, there's no, um, if you took, let's say that you did a drug safety trial and you knew that the mice were broken in such a way that they would lead you to believe that the um, the compound in question was safe, even if it wasn't, right? And then you say, well, we did the drug safety trial perfectly. You know, the only mistake we made was we used mice with long telomeres. And the answer is, well, okay, but why did you do that? Mm -hmm. Did you know that they had long telomeres or did you not know? And if you didn't know, shouldn't you have known, right? Now, there are cases in which somebody might know, might not know in the mouse situation, but in this case, they have everything they need. Not only did they um, have... Um, did they have the knowledge as to what the assumptions of the test that they were going to apply required, but they also had the fact that prior work had categorized these channels differently. So what's their excuse? And then I think, frankly, the most conspicuous thing here, it seems like an anomaly, 
But why did they categorize Eric as center, right? Now, Eric has a hypothesis about this, which I think belongs on the table. Okay. His hypothesis is that because Eric has engaged in challenging conservatives on their channels that he reads differently, which suggests that they did a fine level of, of encoding here, that they looked at his channel and it looked different because of uh, something he has done. I think this is very unlikely. For one thing, I've done some challenging of conservatives on conservative channels too, and so it's possible that those were read differently, that Eric has been more forceful about it, or it was done somewhere that it showed up in their data set. Well, and it's it's supposedly the analysis is entirely on the home channel. It's not about right, the person who hosts the channel. So it really, it, 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 according to what they have stated about how they categorize channels, that should have zero bearing. Um, but, well... For either of you, right. for anyone. And in fact, given what they do show about how they categorize, the simple fact that Eric, not only is he IDW, but he named IDW. Mm -hmm. So how it is that IDW justifies being put in the far right column and Eric ends up in the center. Um, but anyway, my mm -hmm. point would be what I think actually is likely to have caused Eric to be put where he was put is that he was so forceful in uh, debunking the data and society report. And mm -hmm. so in some sense... Um, the cost of putting Eric in the far right category was probably regarded as too high, which suggests, if that is the mechanism here, what it suggests is that this isn't even data. Right. Right? That this is um, cherry-picked in order to reach a conclusion, and for what purpose we can only speculate. But um, if, if the answer is that IDW was misunderstood to be far right, then Eric wouldn't be in the center category. The fact mm -hmm. that he is in the center category suggests that this was massaged for some purpose that we cannot this is know. True. And, um, you know, I, I see <laughs> those institutions ought to be concerned that they have people putting uh, work this bad into the world. And the fact that it's people who have the relevant expertise and therefore this isn't just some sort of a mistake, this is, um, this is the equivalent of academic malpractice, that ought to concern them. Yep. No, I, I agree with that. Um, I, I am not compelled, um, by your argument that there's overfitting or pseudo quantification and such, but, uh, the category errors are profound and fundamental and render the entire analysis, um, not worthy of considering as to whether or not it might not be, it might be true or not, because there is effectively, it, it's built on not even a house of cards. It's built on nothing. How is that not pseudo quantification? Well, what I mean, I guess I need a definition then of pseudo quantification because I'm, you know, in terms of the actual uh, analysis that they did, um, presumably, and again, you know, not not my wheelhouse, and I cannot assess, um, but other people who can assess, who objected to what they did categorically, like in terms of categorization, said um, the way that they performed the analyses, aside from the categorization, they did it well. Well, but they did a mathematical analysis on a data set that is subjective and purely so. So that is pseudo-quantification. They have taken something that isn't quantitative in nature, they have made it appear quantitative, and they have spit out a result that suggests that okay. this is the... Re yeah, I mean, it's pseudo-quantification. Yeah, I can, um, I, I can see that argument. Yeah. Um, and... You know, there's a <laughs> there's a long and rich history of uh, turning things that aren't numbers into number-like things, and uh, and 
than doing things to them that you can only do to numbers. Uh, in, you know, also in the natural and physical sciences, but especially in the social sciences. Um, and I guess I hadn't thought of that as pseudo quantification exactly, but, um, perhaps it is exactly that. I think it is exactly that. And, you know, overfitting, we can argue because overfitting is traditionally a purely statistical claim, Mm -hmm. but the point is they've got a model and they basically shoved the data so that it fit it. And, you know, exactly what you would expect has Mm -hmm. to be true, which is that things end up in categories that no reasonable person would put them in, in order that the model spits out this answer. So, yeah, it does. It does seem conclusion driven. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's editorializing on my part. Um, but there is it, it, it almost reads like glee with regard to the conclusion that the far right, um, like you know, yours truly, are ascending in the world. And oh, my goodness, we must clutch our pearls and try to figure out what to do about it. Well, and in fact, when a bunch of us challenged this, David Rothschild, one of the uh, authors on the paper, responded on Twitter that he was getting a lot of big feelings from, you know, IDW circles, when in fact what he was getting was critique. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, there is a lot of, uh, oh, the last thing I want to say about this is that um, something else that uh, David Rothschild said on Twitter mm-hmm. suggested that... Um, I think it's Rothschild. Oh, okay. Uh, mm-hmm. In any case, that he was um, getting a lot of pushback and that they were open to changing the categorization of channels. Now, on the one hand, I have a feeling our category is going to get changed, right? What I'm concerned about is that as happened with Facebook, the only people who are going to be able to get out of this, out of the way of this juggernaut mm-hmm. are people who have a sufficiently large channel mm-hmm. to embarrass people who write terrible papers like this into uh, taking them out of the line of fire. And, you know, that cannot be, right? The fact is you either do the work properly as uh, as I think these other authors have... Ledwich and Zaitsev. Ledwich and Zaitsev have done, right? That this is a model for how you do this work carefully um, or you don't do it at all. And to the extent that your work is going to be used to shape policy inside of YouTube or wherever, you have an absolute obligation not to stigmatize people. And we can't live in a world where you get to stigmatize the people that you want to stigmatize, and then those people who have a big enough channel can get some sort of an indulgence because they can make us think about it. Um, Cut it out, right? You've demonized a lot of people as far right. You've raised, you know, this particular white identitarian uh, specter over people who have no interest in such things and, in fact, are exactly on the other side uh, of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And um, shame on you for doing it. So cut it out. And, you know, that applies to everybody, big channel or little. doesn't make any difference. Yeah. No, that's good. Shame on you. Stop it. All right. Well, I think we are. I think we're ready to give our end end piece and take a fifty minute break, and then come back to answer your questions in the next hour. So we'll be answering your super chat questions from this hour and from the next hour, starting in fifteen minutes or so. Um, you can once again find um, Dark Horse shirts and and hoodies and bags and such at store.darkhorsepodcast.org email the moderator darkhorse.moderator at gmail.com if there 
items that you don't see that you'd like. We're working on some other stuff. Some of it is harder than you might imagine. Um, a few uh, things that we've considered are perhaps Epic Tabby and People Wolf mm. merchandise. Yep. Possibly, if we can make that happen. Totally, possibly some flint napped tips for your Adelaide. Oh, um, yes. And we have them in flint napped uh, in house. Blue by and Fairfax. Pink. <laughs> I'm going to regret having said that, aren't I? <laughs> yes, especially because the colors that we uh, use to um, associate with the different sexes is definitely highly labile and has changed remarkably. And in fact, even as recently as Victorian times, uh, we're exactly the opposite. Yes, so, we have them in blue and black. I don't know. <laughs> we have them in gray and a different gray. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, Flint-napped heads for your spears that you're using with your adolatals. Yep. Perfect. Um, totally. We're going to have to get our um, our moderator right on that. Yes. <laughs> she's she's going to start flint-napping. Flint-napping, sure. Um, okay. Uh, Dark Horse membership at my Patreon um, has a private Q&A every month. We had um, ours last Sunday. It was you know two hours, uh, intimate enough that we can actually um, look in on the chat. It's very nice. It's, it's fun. Um you have Patreon conversations a couple times a month with Patreons at a higher level. You had one this morning. I did. And have one you this have morning. your second one tomorrow morning. Yep. Uh, so people can uh, join your Patreon um, to see if they go to your Patreon to see yep. if they want to join that. I have not sent out the uh, invite for tomorrow's because I thought some people might sign up for it today and I want to make sure they get the invite. Um, but anyway, I will send that out, uh, let's say, by. Five o'clock Pacific time uh, tonight. All right. Um, you get access to a Discord server at either of our Patreons, and of course, you have a clips channel uh, that's got a lot of clips uploaded with with a fair bit of frequency. That's it. That's it's it. December. It is December. We will see you in fifteen minutes. We will see you in fifteen minutes, and then uh, again for those of you listening, we'll um, we'll be back in a week. All right. Be well, everyone.